0: This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio-related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first-ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, From Fake News to Conspiracy Theories, Using Logic to Safely Navigate the Information Landscape, if you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction. The information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to a, another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by twins. Uh, Dr. Uh, first one, Dr. Perry Zern, who is a assistant professor of philosophy at American University and affiliate, affiliate faculty in the Department of Critical Race, Gender and Culture Studies. He researches in political philosophy, critical theory and trans philosophy, with special expertise in feminist philosophy, philosophies of resistance and network theory. The other twin, I have Dr. Danny Bassett, who is a J. Peter uh, Skirkenick professor at the University of Pennsylvania, with appointments in the departments of bioengineering, electrical and systems engineering, physics and astronomy, neurology, and psychiatry. There are uh, also an external professor of the Santa Fe Institute, Uh, Bassett is most well known for blending neural and systems engineering to identify fundamental mechanisms of cognition and disease in human brain networks. So, both have authored numerous books and publications, including their most recent book, which they actually authored together Curious Minds, the Power of of Connection. Uh, Anyway, Danny and Perry, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Delighted to be here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, this is wonderful. So it, I actually, I think this is the first time that I've done a, I've had a authors come on jointly who have co-authored a book together. But number two, you happen to be twins, siblings. Yes, uh, which is uh, which is really which is really interesting. We'll dig into that in a second. But first thing that I do because I'm always interested when I have a conversation with uh, with scientists. Or other people as well, or philosophers uh, such as yourself, uh, Perry. I always just kind of want to hear how it is that you found yourself studying studying what it is that you're studying. So, for example, Perry, how you know where did your interest um, in philosophy come from? And Danny, where did your interest in uh, in science originate from? So, uh, Perry, yeah. maybe we could start with you.
2: Sure. Yeah. I. Um... You know, I had a well. We both grew up with a uh, being homeschooled from kindergarten through twelfth grade, and the our experience was really um, interdisciplinary and very sort of wide ranging and free. Um, I did encounter some philosophy in high school in that way, but I really encountered philosophy in college. And the minute I, I had actually come in as a pre-med student um, and then I took one of these you know gen ed filler classes and it was a philosophy 101 class and it just blew me over. And I, I haven't stopped since. And I think, I think for me, the, the core of what's fascinating about philosophy is that you get to pause and consider commonly assumed concepts or arguments or perspectives or worldviews, and you get to say, wait, is that really how it is? Is that really what we mean? Is that really what we want? Uh, And I just love that. I love that capacity to to kind of step back from things and and take a new perspective on them.
0: Very interesting. And So for you, Danny, uh, where do you think your curiosity came from? So obviously, you grew up in the same household as Perry, so you were able to explore all of these different areas. uh, Very uh, interdisciplinarian, like Perry said. But why did you? Why do you think you gravitated more towards science and uh, physics in particular?
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think it's a really good question. So. Initially, when I was a kid, I, my father, our father, is an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and he would come back and he would um, learn new surgeries by watching videos uh, using a VCR. Um, and And you know the, these videos would demonstrate how to use particular tools to do a knee surgery, for example. And I remember sitting next to him and being fascinated by the human body and and medicine, how medicine can actually change um, the human body in a way that's beneficial to us. So initially my interests were actually in medicine. Um, I started out in nursing school, and I uh, did that for a year and a half um, towards a an RN degree. Um, but I quickly uh, realized that there were um, parts of that career that I highly respect, but that were very difficult for me personally. And so I decided to move to Penn State University um, and initially signed up in mechanical engineering, uh, and I'm still wondering why, uh, but then took my first physics class and sort of like Perry just couldn't look back. What I find Mm -hmm. fascinating about physics is the fact that um, so many things in our world are so incredibly um mysterious but what physics does is that it says here's this amazing mystery like magnetism but we can write down very simple mathematics to explain why it works the way it works and what it is and it's something about that juxtaposition of mystery and simplicity or maybe complexity and simplicity that that i am just enthralled by um and and really love
0: no that's really interesting Uh that you mentioned that you went in as a me- mechanical engineer, Danny, and then ended up transitioning to physics because I actually had a very similar sort of academic journey where I initially started school as a mechanical engineer as well. And I didn't hmm. immediately transition into physics, but I had always had an affinity for physics. Well, I love science in general, but I would o- always had this pull towards physics, but didn't really think that I could do it from a mathematical uh, standpoint. Uh, so I ended up transitioning into geology after doing a year in mechanical engineering because I knew I wanted to do science and engineering, and then eventually transitioned to physics in graduate school um, after I had taken a bunch of math courses and like I can do this. So, so I had a very similar journey. That's really
1: neat
0: in um, that aspect. Yeah, and I one of the things that I love about physics is like what you just said there. Um, it's that you have all of these questions out there and physics oftentimes is able to boil it down to these very simplistic, beautiful mathematical expressions to explain the, these wonderful phenomena, such as you had highlighted magnetism. So, yeah, as you can, as you can tell, Perry, I'm a bit of a, a physics nerd, too. So uh,
2: That's I great. Enjoy, I, I love I physics do, nerds.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I do love philosophy as well, don't get me wrong. Um, but I definitely uh, gravitate more towards the uh, the physics stuff and the science and the science aspect of things. But anyway, that uh, your stories are are completely fascinating, and in particular the homeschooling aspect of it, I was super intrigued by. And because you know there have been debates back and forth, you know, for as long as I can remember about you know public public education versus the homeschooling system, or, or excuse me, a, a homeschooling education, and. You know, looking back on it as two individuals who have done quite well academically, I'm curious if you think that you'd be in a similar uh, situation if it wasn't for the unique education that you had growing up.
1: Yeah, it feels yeah. impossible to predict what would have happened. Um, yeah. Fact, I just, I just recently finished a, reading a book on the lives that we haven't led but could have led, um, mm-hmm. which was just fascinating thing to think about but i do think that our upbringing um provided us with a really unique perspective on learning um, and experience in learning so one of the things um that our mom did is that she would um invite us to take a really active part in developing our curriculum. So she would ask us what we wanted to learn that particular semester. And then she would um, go and find books that would help us to learn that particular area. But um, the content, the sort of focus was something that we defined. And I think that that draw, that uh, um, opportunity to define the questions that we were most excited about, I think helped us to grow in these, these skills and ways of thinking that um, are very uh, consistent with what you do as a researcher, right? And so, as mm-hmm. a researcher, whether in philosophy or in science, you're constantly define- you're constantly asking, "What question am I most excited about?" And then finding a way to um, unpack that question and get answers. So, I think that bit that was instilled in us quite early is something that we've carried through till now. I don't know, Perry, if you have additional thoughts.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it absolutely helped us to become the researchers we are today. Um, but I also think that it gave us such a sense of empowerment about our own learning and a sense of disregard for disciplinary boundaries that we have both been, in some sense, chastised at various points in our life by our own disciplines to say, "Well, that's not really what you should be doing in this field or in this field or um, or that question isn't relevant." And and but I think for both of us, it's been we 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 you know early on, I think our, our mom instilled in us this capacity to again say, "Yeah, where where do I?" What not only what is the question that I am really excited about, but where are the resources? And if the resources to answer that question aren't currently in my field or in the methods established in my field or in adjacent fields, fine. I'll keep going. Right? I'll keep expanding out to go find to go find those necessary resources and, and methods and and tackle the questions most interesting.
0: Yeah. What I find most fascinating is what you just said there, Perry. How your upbringing has been influential. In, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but kind of pushing the boundaries. And like you said, the very interdisciplinary nature of what you do now academically. And I, I love it personally, because I think that the blending of these various disciplines is really important to advancing knowledge. I think that there's a lot to be learned there in the spaces in between uh, uh, disciplines. So, yeah, in the field, that this kind of ties into the field of, and I know that, Danny, you do research in the area of complexity and that you're involved with the Santa Fe Institute. I absolutely love all of that. Um, so I, I find that, I think I find that the most fascinating aspect of your unique upbringing uh, to you is the fact that you are able to now push these boundaries and you feel free to do it, even though you're getting some pushback, you said. So I think it's pretty awesome. We <laughs> enjoy it. Um, anyway, I, uh, am super curious, believe it or not to hear about, (laughs) to hear about your uh, most recent book here. Um, curious minds and why it is that you felt compelled to write it in the first place.
2: I think we were in a position where we were starting to generate um, really big ideas in our own fields and, but felt really lucky that we were both in academia and we're both headed into positions, you know, more permanent positions in, in academia. And we just, you know, we'd love, we loved growing up together. We loved, um, we'd love talking together about intellectual things all our life. And so we just thought, you know, it'd be really great if we could centralize that in our in our careers too, right? And it didn't just have to be this side side thing. Um, so I think we were we were looking for a concept for a book to write together, and really mm-hmm. wanted that experience of writing a book together. And I was, um, you know, writing a PhD in on curiosity and philosophy, and Danny at the time was. Uh, publishing on flexibility of brain networks. And the, the more I read and heard about this flexibility thing, I said, you know, I really think there's something here that could connect to curiosity and what it is that's happening, perhaps in the mind it, it, um, when we are curious. And at that point, you know, Danny, if you want to jump in.
1: Yeah, well, so then we started talking more about understanding the mind from the neuroscience perspective, which I bring, and the philosophy perspective, which um, Perry brings. So understanding the mind and also specifically the curious mind. And as we started Uh, those conversations, we began collaborating in earnest. So many, much of the work that is described in the book is from scientific articles um, or philosophy articles that we've written together over the last seven years. Um, So we were really building a research archive um, as we began our discussions, and that became um, what we now have in the book. And as we were doing that work and excavating those ideas, I think we realized that Um, I realized that philosophy actually has a lot to offer scientists in defining what curiosity really is or what it could be, and I think um, likewise, Perry has found that science, in particular, in network science, provides a new language um, that can change the conversation in philosophy around what curiosity is. So we realized that our two disciplines could really, by coming together, not only do you get a beautiful gel of ideas, but you also kind of cross-pollinate the two fields in really important ways that pushes the conversation forward.
0: Very interesting. So you've been working together for seven, uh, approximately seven years now, uh, cross-collaborating? Oh wow. So So I know that, so I grew up in a larger family and I have siblings. I don't have a twin, so I don't know what that's like being a twin, but I know that I tend to butt heads with my siblings sometimes. So has there been some spirited conversation back and forth over the years about (laughs) when you're collaborating on research?
1: There's definitely been um, some spirited conversations, but I don't know if they're that kind of conversations. As children, yeah. we had a lot of competition between us. Um, and there yeah. was a lot of butting heads when we were children. I think that um, now I, f- I find, yeah, I don't know. I I don't feel conflict with Perry. <laughs> <with> Perry's <laughs> my best friend. Well, so
0: like... Yeah, no, no, no worries. I was I was trying to more kind of highlight that you know, within science or philosophy or when you're trying to dig into the heart of research problems that there's always conversations that need to be had. And sometimes some are a little bit more tense than others. I didn't know if the the sibling aspect of that, you know, played into the research collaboration at all. That's all. I I was just curious about that.
2: Yeah, I don't think it does. I think that we we come at it with a huge respect. I mean, you know, network neuroscience and philosophy are really different and developed yes. as really different fields and so in that sense we deeply respect each other's what each other is bringing to the to the shared projects that we that we have and our really our, our conversations are more gleeful than anything a sort of okay. like um, Oh, wow, that's what you all are talking about. That sounds like what we're doing <laughs> over here, you know, or like what we're doing over here. What would that look like for you all in the sciences and and, and we're just it feels like we're discovering all of these resonances and, and that's just thrilling.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. So you've been collaborating for seven years, you've published a number of articles together, and then you've kind of compiled all of them and put them into this fantastic book, which I do a lot of reading. I'll be, uh, I mean, as an academic, you know, reading research papers, I do a lot of reading in in my spare time. I have a number of authors on this podcast to discuss recently released books. So I have to read books in order to, read their books in order to prepare, such as what I had to do for today. And I haven't read a book like this in a long time. It is remarkably diverse. It It attaches all these different aspects of science and philosophy through this network, this webbing. Um, And I have to, I'm not, maybe it's both of you or one in particular, but thank you for expanding my vocabulary. (laughs) Um, So yeah, the, uh, the vocabulary that was used in the book. I mean, there were some words that I had never heard before, and I've read a lot of books. I've read a lot. I've, lear- I've read a lot of works, and I just thought it was fantastic. And the ideas are wonderful, and just the way everything was connected together. I mean, it was very, very interesting. And this whole idea of being able to science from an or excuse me study from an empirical standpoint, curiosity, and yeah, it's just fascinating. So let's go ahead and let's go ahead and dig in. Let's let's start with. Um, uh, In the beginning of the book, you kind of dig into the science of curiosity and what exactly it means to be curious and how that fits with the scientific method.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, So, uh, just a quick comment, maybe to circle back to that earlier point that you were making about the way that the book is written and how we pull different strands in from lots of different places. Um, That was very purposeful in a way of demonstrating the kind of curiosity we're talking about in the way we're writing. So we are purposefully um, laying down these threads and pulling on different fields in a very diverse way to kind of illustrate this very expansive um, curiosity that we're talking about. So just a quick note that that style of writing is very purposeful as an example of the the ideas. Um, And then about the science of curiosity, so Um, What's interesting about uh, the science of curiosity is that what we typically do in science is try to identify, you know, what the question is. Um, what the parts of the question are. What are the key variables that are important in um, answering a specific question or a hypothesis, and then uh, developing experiments that will help us to um, address those variables. So what we talk about in that first chapter is thinking about science and the scientific method as pulling apart the pieces of a sentence, finding all of the parts of speech. What is the noun that we're excited about? What does the noun do? Okay, that's the verb. What does the noun do um, in certain spaces? Okay, that's the preposition. Uh, the, the sort of separation of questions in science into these parts of speech actually helps us to write down mathematically what the model is that we would want to use. And um, so that's a, I think, key, Relationship between um, curiosity and and kind of the scientific method, but then we also move uh, into ideas of of where does curiosity lie? If that's the, if that's the noun, if that's the thing we're searching for, where do we find it? Um, is it in the body? Is it in the heart? Is it in the feet and the hands that like pick, pick things up? Is it in the mind? Um, is it in the brain? And we talk about how, how you would attempt to develop experiments that would identify curiosity if it was in each of these places. So if it was in the brain, is there a particular piece of the brain that, that's the curiosity piece, right? Um, and then if that's the case, then how does that curiosity piece talk to the piece of the the brain that moves your hand to pick something up, or that directs your eyes to notice something in the corner of your view, or um, makes you focus on, you know, your ears hearing a, an odd sound that comes um, from across the field. So um, we ask questions about how to identify what the pieces are and then how they would come out in, into the rest of the body. But at the end of the chapter. At the end of the that sort of piece of the, the puzzle, we note that um, the scientific field right now has, has questioned whether it's even possible to define curiosity. Is, it, is that even a worthwhile goal? Or should we just be studying human behavior and its methods of inquiry, Without trying to state any definition, without trying to identify the variables or write down a mathematical model, just let's let's just watch humans for a while as they're um, searching for information, and and we'll define curiosity later. Is is basically what what a, a group of scientists are suggesting, and that made me as a scientist pause and say, Are we stuck? Are we at a place where we can't define curiosity? And if so. Um, Are there fields outside of science that could help us to define it better and in a way that is is practically more useful in developing new experiments? And that's really where this germination of um, uh, interdisciplinary work with Perry began, because I think it's actually, I'm convinced that it's in philosophy where the definition of curiosity is, is most fruitful right now um and that that going into philosophy allows us to come back out to science and say with a philosophical account of curiosity how does that change our experiments and how does that change how we think about the mind
0: very interesting very very interesting so okay so science can't definitively define curiosity, at least up until this point prior to to your work. So then you had to dive into philosophy. And this has often happened in the past where you have philosophical underpinnings directing scientific experiment in order to define curiosity. Okay, fascinating. Fascinating. I think
1: what's important about that maybe is to recognize You know, as a scientist, I understand that the majority of our work focuses on humans who are alive today and the ideas that are present right now. But curiosity, well, and the mind are are things that have been around for thousands of years, right? And so what's really interesting is that science typically isolates itself to ideas that are present today um, without really recognizing the fact that there's a history of those ideas that could help um, to change or flex the accounts that we're currently using. And so that's what mm-hmm. where I think philosophy, and specifically um, the history of philosophy, can come into play. Because then we can say, how has the mind been thought of for 2,000 years? How has curiosity been thought of for 2,000 years? Are those accounts um, being used to their greatest, t- to their fullest measure? In science right now, or are we really just focusing on a tiny slice of them that we felt was um, accessible to scientific inquiry, and I think usually it's the latter we're focused on the focusing on this tiny slice of an account of curiosity tiny slice of the account of the mind. um, That seemed you know accessible to science, but we've kind of forgotten or or not um, expanded our minds to understand that history that could be so useful in better constraining our models.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. Absolutely. And we definitely don't want to constrain ourselves and you don't want to, because at some point you're tossing out valuable valuable information when you're constraining, when your scale isn't appropriate and you're not able to perhaps have as ac- as accurate of a worldview or a idea of the situation as you possibly could if you just kind of expanded your boundaries a little bit.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So one thing you also said in the beginning of the book that I found was really interesting kind of on that topic about scale and not limiting kind of the information is that there was a mention of how reductionism or absolute reductionism uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily work. So I was wondering if we could explore that topic just a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So reductionism is this approach that takes a complex system and says, um, let's understand each of the parts and what each of the parts does. Um, And it's a very, it's a decompositional approach. It says, here's here's the composition, here's the complex system, let's decompose it into its pieces um, and understand what each of those pieces are. However, it's really important to recognize that even if you understand what the pieces are, you've reduced it to the pieces, that's reductionism. Um, And even if you understand what the pieces do, that doesn't mean that you know how to put the pieces together to build the complex system that you started with. And so the pieces are are often, they don't necessarily hold the key or the secret um, to how the thing works when it's all put together. Uh, So there has to be the, the sort of decomposition is distinct from and not redundant with the recomposition. And so it's kind of the mystery of the recomposition that becomes important. So yes, we want to understand the pieces. Yes, we want to understand what each of them does. In this case, it's the mind, the pieces of the mind or the pieces of the brain. But then we also need to understand how those pieces come together to form the mind or to form the brain um, and to support our curiosity. So it's it's that expansive upward uh, motion that remains critical and remains um, important to understand, and that's beyond the the um, boundaries of reductionism.
0: So I absolutely agree with you, but I think that there might be some particle physicists out there who uh, don't agree with us, <laughs> 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 who think that absolute reductionism is the way that science should be done. And I actually think that there's room for both you want to have reductionism because you want to break things down into their little, little, little bitty parts as much as you can to try to understand how things work on the most fundamental level. So in this instance, I think particle physics is probably the most fundamental that we can get, or yeah, exactly particle physics, or I was going to say theoretical physics, but that deals with particle physics So or, um, or or quantum gravities. But then as you build things up, systems change, which is why we have different sciences. So as a physicist, Danny, you'll understand that you have quantum mechanics, then you have statistical mechanics, and then you have relativity. So you're talking about all these different scales, and once you reach a certain threshold, you have new physics, or you have a new physical type of framework that you need to use in order to understand what's going on. So it's this sort of emergent properties That come about when you have more and more stuff interacting with uh, with one another.
1: Yeah, and it's actually exactly those emergent properties that I think require us to go beyond reductionism because emergent properties are properties, you can't predict from the pieces Um, and actually maybe that just to circle back for the audience that is. The, a large part of complexity science is understanding how really complex functions emerge from systems that have lots of little pieces. Um, and that's that's a domain that I've found exceptionally exciting for as long <laughs> as I knew about it.
0: <laughs> and how does that tie into curiosity? Maybe we can expound a bit on that. I know you briefly mentioned that a little while ago, but with curiosity, you're talking about the little bit Um, In this uh, this instance, you were talking about kind of the brain and the smaller functions, or maybe like ideas, just little bits of ideas and how they branch out into curiosity.
1: Yeah. And I think, well, I think that's where network science comes in, which is that we want to understand how the pieces of the brain are connected up together and share information with one another, and how... Understanding arises from that interconnected pattern, and that understanding and curiosity are both um, facets of the human mind that that are not explainable by by isolated pieces of tissue. Um, mm-hmm. They are they require this this more um, connected approach, which is what which is part of the reason why we called it the power of connection. However, I think this focus on connection um, well, two points I want to make. One is that The focus on connection is important for explaining how how complicated functions emerge in the brain and in the mind, but it's also really important for understanding um, uh, curiosity as it relates to how people interact with one another in social um, and other broader settings. But I think that whole story of where the connectivity comes in and how that helps to explain complex functions really came about by talking to Perry about the philosophy of curiosity. so that's that's a key piece of the puzzle that sort of then comes into um, the network story.
0: And while we're on the topic of philosophy, uh, Perry, let's kind of dig into the philosophy of curiosity. And you just mentioned Danny. So that's where the philosophical component comes into play, the network science. So let's go ahead and explore it. So go ahead, Perry.
2: Sure. Yeah, so in the philosophy of curiosity, um, we get to build on thousands of years of philosophers talking about curiosity. One of the things that's interesting is that philosophers haven't really uh, written books on curiosity. Curiosity has been this sort of peripheral thing that folks write a a chapter here or a paragraph there um, throughout the history. So it regularly shows up throughout the history of philosophy, but there's not like tomes about it, uh, which just says there's a lot more we can do. Um, But Throughout that history, one of the things you see is a consistent characterization of curiosity as this desire to know or this capacity to explore or this um, ability to grasp new information. And we end up in the book characterizing this story as an acquisitional account of curiosity. Curiosity is seen as a, a capacity through which I can acquire information. I can gather up all, all this information and then it's mine, right? I get to hold it in some sense. And this this account has informed really the bedrock of um, psychology psychological studies of curiosity and therefore neuroscientific studies of curiosity because those have really built on the psychology so neuroscience is built on psychology has built on philosophy's definition of curiosity as this capacity to grasp new information but this is a limited account because it centers the individual and it is a it's a because of its acquisitional quality, it doesn't allow information itself to have its own relational world uh, in which we're relating to it. Rather, it's just the knower who goes out and gets the things they want to know and then does things with that knowledge. It's very individual focused and kind of uh, enterprise focused. We end up proposing and one of the things that I saw as I returned to all of these kind of accounts of curiosity, there seems to be another story of curiosity underneath and kind of to the side of um, that primary story. So there's if, if we think of the primary story as being told by St. Augustine and Rene Descartes and John Locke and folks like this, we can see, for, for example, in John Dewey, a different story of curiosity. Where curiosity is this capacity to connect and this drive to connect what I know and to what I don't yet know, but also to connect me to my world me to my surroundings me to other people right curiosity is this drive um, to build connections of knowledge and of social relations. And that also means this account, this connectional account of curiosity then allows us to think about curiosity not as this individual capacity so much as this driver of social uh, knowledge, social and global knowledge and um, kind of world building that we all do together. And it's precisely that account I think that has so much resonance with a a network science, Um, but it also gives us a lot more resources to use curiosity to think about the challenges that we all face together in our shared worlds and in our shared worlds of knowledge.
0: Now, what you just said there about thinking of, thinking of it as networks, I am just really curious as to how philosophy explores that. I know that you kind of touch on that in the book a little bit, but I and again, I'm I'm coming at this more from a scientist perspective, and I've read into network science. But how does philosophy explore networks, like on a more, I guess, on a more technical level? How do you how do you explore a network in philosophy? And then perhaps we can relate it to the work that you've done with Curiosity.
2: Sure. <laughs> What's helpful to know is that uh, network science is really built on. Um, earlier versions of network social science, so sociology okay. in particular, and even before that. So, if we're talking about around the 70s, there's a lot of theorists, philosophers, theorists, et cetera, who are writing with the language of networks in the 70s and, and, and sort of around there. So it's easy to start there if you want explicit reference to networks and how it is that philosophers are thinking through networks. 1970s is a, is a good place to go. One example is uh, Fernand Deligny, who is a, a French um, Theorist who worked a lot with children with autism, um, and one and therefore he's focused he's focused on education, but especially for for neurotypical folks. Um, but he he writes uh, an entire treatise about that is called the Arachnian, and it, it's about web making of knowledge, how we make webs of knowledge, and he uses the language of networks all throughout this. And he's writing in the '60s and '70s, um, so. And he and he says this is particularly helpful. This pr- approach of thinking about knowledge as webs or knowledge as networks is particularly helpful if we're trying to reimagine education for neurotypical, or in his language, you know, students with autism specifically. Um, so it's. The, the resources are there, and, and the language is, is particularly compelling. Of course, it's not formalized into scientific um, or mathematical formulas and is not applied in any experimental sense because that's not what philosophy and theory do. But we do explore concepts, and we explore the relationships between concepts and the ways we could rearrange our ideas that would help open up new ways of thinking things. And so we, do, we have a network philosophy in that sense.
0: Very interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I'm fascinated by philosophy. And I was just really think I was, as I was going through your book, I was just trying to figure out how exactly you differentiate between the philosophy of networks versus what is done in network science besides the, I suppose, the experimental aspect of it. So of course, philosophy doesn't do experiment, but like, how do they influence each other? So, yeah, I was just, well, thank you for answering that. Yeah, I was just super curious to uh, to try to dig deeper on that particular topic.
2: And yeah, I mean, I would also just say there should be more work here between yeah. uh, network scientists and, and network philosophers. I think there's, so the reason that you're not quite sure how that would work is because there's not <laughs> enough work there. Uh, so it's an opening, <laughs> I think, that we're, we're stepping into, but I, I hope a lot of other folks are as well.
0: Well, yeah, thank goodness to you two are exploring it, right? <laughs> so we have the scientists in network science working with the philosopher in uh, in network science. So uh, yeah, so help uh, fill the gaps or uh, explore that area with your curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so, okay, within, uh, within. so if we're looking at the, we're, we're dealing with this network paradigm for curiosity. How exactly do you, so within within networks you have, the nodes, and then you have the edges. And this is a concept that's explored in your book. And you say that curiosity is edges. And I don't specifically recall what the nodes are. I think that has to do with the the unit of thought, uh, which leads to the curiosity on the edges. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but how exactly, yeah, how, how exactly does that all work? So I can't recall it exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so the idea is, so if this philosophical account of a connectional curiosity um, has, has legs in the scientific world, then what we would need to do is to isolate what the pieces are and then what the, or the nodes are in the network, and then what the edges are, what are the relations? So in the context of thinking, the uh, nodes could be a particular thought. It could be a concept which is fairly small, could be an idea which might be a little bit bigger, could be um, a whole thought, uh, which could be a little bit bigger and then you could get, get to questions about well what is the size of the thought right I don't know is it what I'm thinking right now in two seconds or is a thought something that I've really had for 10 years. Um, so. Here, this brings back your scale point um, earlier, which is that there are many different scales at which we can define this the size of the node when we're talking about curiosity, the thing we're interested in. Could be very small, could be very large. Even in the context of language, you can say, well, maybe the node is a sentence, or maybe the node is a clause, or maybe the node is a word, Or maybe the node is a sound at the beginning of a word um, or syllable, it's there are many different scales where this could where we could usefully be building um, networks and then what is the edge, well the edge in the context of of an idea is a relationship between two ideas Um, and. To illustrate that still might sound really abstract, so I want to give an example. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, how does the mind ha- show that it has relations inside of it or networks inside of it? The easiest way to see that for yourself is to do what's called a free association task. And what that is is that you um, pick a word, any word that you want. I'm going to pick. Um, uh, I'm going to pick keys because I have the keys for my car on my desk here. Um, So I'm going to pick keys. And then from keys, I need to move to something else that that comes to mind right afterward. Okay. And I'm going to do this for a couple words. So I'm going to start with keys. And then once I think of key, I think of car and then plane and then clouds and then rain and then rivers, mountains, glaciers climate change, climate in businesses and educational institutions, maybe cultures of inclusion or diversity or equality and justice. Um, Maybe then I would go from justice to the Supreme Court. And then I would think of um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And then that leads me to, you know, icons, a feminist icons specifically and then I'd go from probably Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Virginia Woolf who's one of my one of my favorite icons. Um, okay. So in those few words, I've gone from the keys on my desk to Virginia Wolf, right? Mm-hmm. And that feels like a wildly huge space to have covered. But you can tell from each of those steps that there was a relation. There was mm-hmm. an edge that connected keys to car. I know the relationship between a key and a car. I know the relationship between rivers and mountains. I And I can tell it to you and you you know it already. Um, you know the relationship between mountains and glaciers, between glaciers and climate change between climate change and you et cetera. So each of these steps is explainable by an edge, a relation, um, and each of those words would be a node. So the fact that I can do free association and that any audience member can do free association indicates that there's a network in our minds that has a pattern of relationships between ideas or concepts. And it's that pattern that we're really interested in exploring. We wanna know how it got there, we want to know how it grows we want to know what happens when we have different kinds of curiosity does that pattern grow differently do we each have different patterns in our minds and is that because we're curious differently from one another so those are all sort of the questions that come up as soon as you think about the fact that um that that knowledge is is really sort of a network structure that we, Mm -hmm. that we seek, that we build over our lifetimes um, and that we build by curious actions or curious practices.
0: So you would describe those chain, those chains. So the edges. So you have each of the nodes that you connected and then the edges. Why, why, why are you convinced that those edges are curiosity? I, I mean, I agree that you could label it as curiosity, but I'm, I would like to know why it is that you think you're like convinced that it that that this edge in particular when you said all those various words that connected Mm. that it was curiosity that got you there
1: Mm, yeah in that in that free association task those edges are, I think, an indicator of past curiosity. It's not necessarily a, of my curiosity right at this second. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an indication more that there's a network structure in our minds, and the, then the question of curiosity is is more about the question of how that network got there. So I like your yeah. I like what you're asking. So let's let's think about that for a second. So why is it that we say that curiosity is this this edge like action? Well, it's because when I think I'm seeking information. I'm, I'm not necessarily seeking a isolated piece of information that isn't connected to anything else. I'm seeking something because of its connections. So, um, I am learning about a new field, and I realize that there's a piece of the field that I really don't understand. It's like a hole inside of my network, right? And I know the, the ideas that are around that hole. And I know that there's that I'm missing a piece of the puzzle. And what I want to do is to, under, to find that piece and I'll know that that's the piece when it connects to everything around it in a way that's understandable, right? So it's that connection becomes important. I want to contrast that view, that connected view, with um, imagining that curiosity is really about finding the nodes themselves. Mm -hmm. To find an isolated node with no connections means that you know absolutely nothing about that node, you don't know, you can't understand any of its shared relationships with anything else. There's nothing about that node that you understand. You don't know any single piece of it. Well, if that's the case, then that node is, for example, a word in a language you've never heard before. And, or it's a, you know, something from um, a planet that you've never visited, or it's from an alien culture that you don't, that you've never been exposed to. And you wouldn't even know that you saw it when you saw it because you don't know anything about it right so it's Mm -hmm. this like isolated nothingness out there it it wouldn't it also wouldn't be useful to you for any reason because you don't know how it relates to anything else there's this wonderful i think it's dewey actually who um has a passage in one of his books democracy and education where he says that Um, Knowledge is such a pattern of interconnections that any past experience can offer a point of advantage from which to get at the problems presented in a new experience. And what he's, what he's underscoring here is that any piece of knowledge that you have, anything that you've learned, necessarily relates to something that you knew before. Otherwise, it's n- not knowledge or not something you can grasp or even seek. And it also predicts something about your the future or about what you could know, or it might change your decisions um, about what you might do in the future. So it's always connective in this pat- backwards connection and forward connection manner. Um, if if units, if if what we were seeking was this completely distinct, independent thing, we could never do anything with it. it. It doesn't help us to understand the past, and it wouldn't help us to do anything different in the future. So that's why I think it has to be connective because knowledge is connective.
2: Mm-hmm. And I would, I would just add there that we talk about curiosity as edge work. So working certain edges, which on the one hand means laying down these edges or these relations between what we know and what we're coming to know, building those edges, you know, literally laying down that, that thread. That's part of what curiosity as edge work is. But it can also mean removing certain edges. So all of us in, in each of our fields we know and or have have done this ourselves, right? That there are certain connections the field has made that have had to be disconnected right we thought these two things were related in a particular way now we know they're not <laughs> that happens yeah. in every field so the the edge work is for and that's that's driven by curiosity right we're, we're looking at this edge and we're looking at this relationship but we're testing different things out and we're saying that's not working it's not working I think it's this edge it's this connection we we've just taken for granted we got to lift that up we got to put that down somewhere else um, so curiosity as edge work is I think a helpful term
0: yeah, I like the way that you uh, frame that, Perry. Where it's you're breaking down and build, building up and restructuring these these knowledge networks. And you know the the title of the uh, th- or the yeah the title of that chapter I think is is curiosity as edge work. So yeah, definitely having to break down, build up, and reform these networks. One thing I did want to ask though, when you were talking about how and Danny you had just mentioned that knowledge doesn't make sense unless it's connected to the past. And then you had referenced a passage from Dewey. How does a how does new life, I guess, fit into this framework? So for example, a developing mind. So a individual that is just born and learning brand new things about the world. So they don't have any prior references. So are they naturally, like instinctually curious about the world? Of course we need to learn things in order to survive because if we don't learn how to feed ourselves, if we don't learn how to protect ourselves from danger, uh, we don't grow up and become old enough to pass on our genetics, uh, which is something that all animals must do. So yeah, I'm just curious if you've ever thought about that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. And actually in the study of infants, there's a particular kind of implicit or or passive learning that occurs, which is not necessarily the infant seeking something, although that also happens, um, but that the infant is exposed to information and passively acquires knowledge about the world from that exposure. So I want to sort of make a distinction here between the active, Soliciting of of knowledge from our external world and the passive observation um, d- from just being exposed to okay uh, lots of information right and so yeah. for for infants when they're exposed to information particularly about language when they hear people around them speaking they will very quickly what they what they do is that they sense dependencies between um, phonemes so a phoneme meaning a, a um, a piece of sound of a word. So what the infants will do is that they'll, they'll hear, oh, here's a, here's a sound that I've heard before. It very frequently comes next to this other sound and less frequently comes next to this other sound. Um, and so they begin to learn the, the, how probable it is to transition from one sound to another. And it is breaks in that transition pattern that signal to them the separation of one word from another word. And that's how they build their vocabulary. Um, so this is called statistical learning. They're learning from just being exposed to the sounds and recognizing how probable it is that one sound will transition to another one. There's beautiful work showing that that kind of statistical learning is a network learning. Actually, mm-hmm. it is a an understanding, a, an appreciation for um, the patterns of connections between phonemes. And that's how infants learn. Um, But it is much more of a a passive approach than something that is, um, you know, I'm I'm an adult and I'm seeking out this piece of knowledge that I know is missing in a hole in my understanding of Mm -hmm. um, relativity.
2: And that, you know, that happens socially too, right? So we acquire a full-blown network of social values and explanations of the world and our relationships to one another without Passively, as as you're indicating, simply by you know by the by the time we're two, probably or maybe even before, right? There are, there are studies that demonstrate that young people already have a sense of what's right and wrong at I don't know infant level, um, and they're acquiring that slowly, and and all of us are. And this is um, I think it's an invitation, obviously, to to rethink the things that we've acquired passively, the networks of values socially that we've, that we've acquired passively, and to sometimes put them to this kind of more active test. Um, well, do we really want to? Let's, well, let's uncover them, and then let's ask, you know, do we really want to organize our, ourselves in that way?
0: Yeah, it's a very uh, interesting distinction, an important one as well, uh, like you said, Danny, I'm curious in the passive learning, you said that also there's evidence for networks, Uh, In that instance, what do you think the edges are? I don't know if there's actually been any research into trying to define the edges. Uh, Please feel free to speculate at this point. I mean, if there's no work that's been done.
1: Yeah, no, the edges are transition probabilities. So that means the probability with which something transitions to something else. And in language, it's a phoneme transitioning to another phoneme. But we also use the same kind of approach for understanding visual scenes, in which case the the, the uh, nodes are going to be events and the transition probability is the probability that one event transitions to another event. We learn that this common example here would be the relationship between thunder and lightning. Right, Those are two different events and there's a very <laughs> well-specified transition probability between them based on how thunderstorms work. Um, so that's uh, that's what the edges are.
0: Okay, very interesting. And so knowledge networks. And you had touched on this earlier. I don't know if it was you, Danny, or uh, you, Perry, where you are talking about the various shapes that, you know, as we learn, we have different learning patterns and there's different styles. And the way that these knowledge networks organize themselves have different morphologies or topologies if you're talking about like graph theory or something like that. Now you had Talked about in one of your chapters that there's particular styles, that there's three archetypes. Um, so you have the busybody, the hunter, and then the dancer. So perhaps we could uh, talk a little bit more about these three archetypes that you had identified uh, through your work.
2: Sure. Yeah. One of the questions for me um, early on in my study of the philosophy of curiosity was to think about curiosity not as um, this kind of light bulb that I carry inside me, but rather as something I do in the world or something each of us does in the world. Curiosity is a kind of practice, and it's something that we can practice. So then the question is, what what are those practices? Um, what, what does curiosity do? And um, as I went back across to to revisit all of these passages in the history of philosophy, specifically Western philosophy, because that's how how I'm trained. I was looking. I, I at one point I looked for all the definitions of curiosity, and then just got frustrated. And then decided let's look at the the descriptions of what curiosity looks like in practice, and what might I gain from all of those descriptions. And it was so interesting to me that over and over and over again there were sort of this, these three pockets of descriptions of curiosity um, across thousands of years and multiple continents, and and that that seemed kind of Surprising and, and worth pausing over. So, um, these archetypes, the busybody, for example, is someone who loves to learn about a lot of different things, just has this really wide ranging interests, and in that sense, builds their knowledge networks. Um, very sort of generously. I'm happy to kind of make this connection to this and this connection to this, and put this in my in my kind of uh, constellation of knowledge sets. And I, I'm you know I'm not a purist. I'm not trying to like re- reduce my interests. I'm just I'm ready. I'm just a ready learner, right? So that's a busybody. And then the hunter is someone who's far more focused. And and there's a lot of language specific. When I talk about the hunter, I mean to say many people talk about curiosity as a hunt for something. And Mm -hmm. and or the the curious people in in this uh, kind of Western culture as hunters. So this language is in the texts, in multiple languages. So that's that's where I'm drawing the titles of these archetypes. But the hunter is very focused, has a few things that they were one or two things that they really like to, to zero in on. And they want to know a lot about that. And otherwise, they're sort of bored. Right. But those things, they're what they're ready to talk about. They're ready to investigate. um, Let's just stay there. And they tend to build, um, at least as we've talked about it, much uh, tighter knowledge networks where a lot of the connections are filled in compared to the busybody who doesn't need a lot of connections filled in um, for their web. And then the third uh, archetype is the dancer. And the dancer is somebody who takes leaps of creative imagination. And there I, I follow typically the language of leaping. So there isn't so much there is some language of dancing in relationship to curiosity in these texts, but a lot of language of leaping. Um, and the leap is this moment of creative imagination. I'm here. I know this. What if? I jump over here and make and build this new connection. What what happens to my knowledge network then? What can I think? What can I do in the world? What can I create? Um, so the dancer is the 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 creative of the three.
0: Yeah, I so th- with those three archetypes, I really understood the busybody and then the hunter, and I was slightly confused about the dancer and how they how they gather knowledge you're talking about like leaps and things like that are these the individuals these are like super creative types I'm guessing is probably what you're what you're getting at here with the dancer the learning style uh where they're kind of a a bit uh scattered but then they like connect all these diverse uh diverse points am I kind of hitting on that correct or
2: yeah or you can think about it in relationship to um sort of Any anyone who learns learns a field or has a career, so you have to start uh, as some. You have to start out in a career or in a field by learning a lot about a lot of different things. Right, you take all of these classes or you have all of this experience, and then you start to focus in. Say, okay, this is my area. This is where I'm going to drill down. This is where I'm gonna develop expertise. So you start mm-hmm. more as this busybody structure, you zero in as the hunter. And then the longer that you're in a field or in a career, you get to know areas of that field or career that need to be changed, that need to be reimagined. And it's at that moment that you can access sort of the the dancer-like curiosity to say, Okay, oh, what okay. if I change? What if I put, you know, a, a, an original idea? If I change a concept, if I reimagine a practice, and let's do it differently. Let's let's you know, let's take all those edges off that, that haven't been working and redo them. Um, so the the dancer is is that that last moment of sort of creative change, which I think is not. It it does mark artists certainly, but I think it could mark any of us really.
0: Mm-hmm. So is it fair to say that the this dancer curiosity is like an epiphany or a Eureka moment type of type of situation, or is it something more deliberate where you are so learned within a particular area, you're like, well, let's let's now play around with it and see what I come up with.
2: Yeah, I think it could be either when I think about Mm -hmm. um, books about sort of the creative life, there are certain everyday practices that can invite this creativity in which it's not really a particularly eureka moment, but you show up, you show up with an openness to looking at something sort of cockeyed okay. <laughs> and, 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 and askew and seeing it. Oh, wow. You know what? There's a different path here that folks are missing and that I was missing. And I'm going to follow that out. Danny, I don't know if you want to fill out the dance or any any further.
1: Yeah, no, I was definitely going to agree with you that I think that the dancer could either be this like very short time scale epiphany aha moment or a longer time scale wrestling with two things that just kind of don't gel right now or that or that might gel differently in the future. Maybe I'll give another illustration, Perry. I liked yours about the sort of career. I'll give another illustration of how this happens in scientific research. So at the and scientific discovery. So at the very beginning of a project any project in the lab. We will typically read a lot around the space, and we'll go to conferences and listen to a lot of talks that are given in that space. Maybe we'll read some books, some articles, we'll talk to people. A lot of it is busybody-like curiosity. And then once we've identified the question that we're most excited about answering and really drilled down to say, here's the specific hypothesis that we want to test, then we become more hunter-like and seek for information about... The answer to to test the answer to the question or testing the hypothesis with particular experiments that's much more focused much more hunter like seeking of information. And then, when we're done and we've got an answer, we always want to ask the question of so what so what now we have an answer where did what did that do where did it get us and. In answering the so what, you have to say, because we've found this, because we've discovered this, that means this about some other field. It means this about medicine. It means this about how to treat patients. It means this about the universe. Um, So it's understanding and unpacking the kind of so what of a hunter-like curiosity is I think what the dancer can do. And at a broad scale, that's interdisciplinary work. It's like, mm-hmm. how does this relate to another discipline? But even at the more local scale, it's just asking how does this, this new piece change kind of the landscape around it um, and alter how we think more generally.
0: Okay, I understand better now. Yeah, those, those analogies definitely help. And I, I didn't think that they were related uh, at first. I thought that they were just like different, distinct learning styles that you had identified. Um, I think Perry, this was this was your chapter that you wrote um, that you had identified these three different styles. I didn't realize that like one essentially evolves into another. Like it's just a a series of steps between the different types of uh curiosity or, or knowledge networks here um, as you go deeper into a specific topic. So you start off as a busybody, as you said, Perry, and then you kind of evolve into the hunter and then eventually to the dancers, you become more refined. Uh, and then you want to make these, these connections uh, at some point, or these connections are made by themselves uh, at some point when you become the dancer.
1: Yeah. And maybe, oh, so Perry, you're going to say that one? No, go ahead. I was just going to say that it's, um it's also the, these examples that we just gave moved from those three, moved through those three in that particular fashion, but I don't mm-hmm. think that we hold that that's the only way in which they can be used that they could be they could be mixed and matched you could move through them differently you can pop out into the busybody at any point in whatever career or research Mm -hmm. project you're in Um, and so that's one point that they don't have to go in this order but sometimes that order is really understandable I think it's easy to come up with examples for how we do that okay the second point I think I want to make is that those three are um key obviously from a historical point of view but they're also not the only um uh styles that we think are important and Perry maybe you want to just mention some of the others
2: yeah, so we've been we've just had a blast of a time. You know, anytime that someone <laughs> says there's only, there's three and only three of something, you say, well, that's impossible, right? There there yeah. must be more than three archetypes <laughs> of curiosity, and that's part of what's exciting for us. We want this to be the beginning of a conversation about styles of curiosity because um, we really believe there's a, there's more out there, and the more that we know about these styles, um, the better we can facilitate and access curiosity in ourselves and in each other in variety of settings. So one of the places that we've gone is to turn to animals. And so that we have an appendix of the book in which we talk about 18 different animals, which is just the beginning. We have notes on many more. Um, This is sort of a pastime at this point. But to think about animals and insects and other creatures um, and how they're exploring their world, uh, whether scientifically, right, how we actually observe their behaviors or how they behave in literatures fables stories that we've inherited and how these tell us ways of being curious that we may not uh, necessarily recognize or celebrate among us as humans but maybe we should right and maybe they offer a much wider swath um, than the busybody hunter dancer triptych
0: yeah that's another question i was actually going to ask at some point is how did you narrow in on these three archetypes Uh, because you just said there's more so why are these? Why were these the most important? I suppose. Uh, why did these float to the top based off of all of your observations from the research and the literature?
2: Yeah, I would say that they were the most pronounced, where the yeah. words were repeated the most often. People kind of returned to these uh, and echoed prior authors on these kind of three styles. Uh, in scientific terms, there were there were there was evidence of other sorts of styles, but the evidence was a lot noisier. And um, it was difficult to kind of pull out and distinguish what it was that was being talked about there. So I think there's more work that could be done from the historical philosophical perspective to uh, draw draw more styles out of the histories um, as much as you know, also turning to other archives.
0: Okay. Well, there's more work to be done, like you said, and uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see eventually what uh, what comes to light. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I thought was fascinating, and I love this about your book too, is that besides the very uh, the beautiful artwork that you have at the beginning of every chapter, which is just wonderful, by the way, um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But you also have network diagrams, and some of them are just like hand sketches, and uh, which I think is wonderful. And when you're describing the three archetypes, I remember there was a diagram on one of the pages where you have the busybody diagram and juxtaposed with it is the hunter diagram. And you have these networks. So the busybody can be looked at as a longer network. And then you have these nodes interconnected, spread out. So these are all the various points that you're pulling from. You don't actually know knowledge on a, on, on a deeper level yet, but you know it in a wider level. Uh, and then you have the hunter network, which is very dense, like one of the small world networks. So you have a lot of nodes and it's very deep. Uh, I just thought that was a, a very, very illustrative of what you were trying to describe with those three archetypes. And I know the dancer wasn't there, but I could probably imagine, or maybe I missed it, um, but I probably could imagine that the dancer would just be a if you were to talk about a, if you were to talk, go through the transition from a busybody to a hunter and then to the dancer. So these moments where you're restructuring the graphs, so you're taking an existing graph and you're either removing edges or you're adding them and building a more streamlined, let's say sort of, yeah, sort of graph. I don't know. Is that kind yes. of pictorially yes. accurate of <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes it is and it's also I love the fact that you're you're calling out the dancer as the one that allows for kind of a change in the shape of the network um, and that's exactly what we think that the dancer is doing it might need to remove some edges it might need to add some edges but it allows for a reshaping and this is sometimes hard to have a picture of in your mind because often when we think of networks we think of something like a scaffold that we would see on the side of a building that's getting um, rebuilt or refurbished or something, um, and those scaffolds are very rigid, right? They're 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 and they're very boxy and rectangular and etc. Um, and they're so rigid that's that's their point, so that when people climb up on them to do the work on the side of the building, they don't fall down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in our our knowledge networks there's a potential for you to create a connected architecture that would move, that would have some flexibility, that would not be rigid. Um, and this is illustrated by these wonderful um, Danish sculptures called the Strandbeasts. Um, and these are our sculptures that are created out of piping and wood and canvas, where the sculptor um, Theo Janssen um, or Janssen, he, uh, connects pieces up together with one another in such a way that when the wind blows in a particular direction, it will move certain pieces and, and it will mechanically allow the strand of to walk across a beach next to the ocean. Um, and it's that kind of movement or that kind of reshaping of a connective architecture that I think is what the dancer does. So whenever I think about the dancer, I think of these strand of beasts.
0: Okay. I know precisely what you're talking about and oh, those yeah those pieces of artwork are, those sculptures are just they're beautiful. Are just beautiful. Yeah, they're absolutely beautiful and brilliant too in so many ways uh, beautiful expression of artwork and one's own uh, imagination and curiosity. Yeah. But while you were describing that I had a I suppose a dancer moment or a bit of an epiphany of how for those of people who are not familiar and are actually listening or watching could visualize the the networks that we're talking about or a web of knowledge is think of a spider web and that each of the intersections where you have the intersections you have like a little node there so that's some sort of piece and that the the linkages are the edges that might be a great way for people to visualize what's going on here <laughs> for yes. those who are unfamiliar
1: yes i love that so. and i also want to point out that spiders after they've built a web sometimes they will um eat sections of it or the entire thing and then rebuild it again um Mm -hmm. and that's a very extreme sense of the dancer perhaps uh but but one that's relevant to the very end of our book where we talk about um cracking networks
0: yeah absolutely
2: well and we also like to just yeah i think we also like to think about when i mean if the the most recent spider webs you've seen probably have moments of rupture right where a leaf has kind of come in and broken it or a twig or some stronger bee has actually flown through it and just sort of messed it up and i think that's it's interesting to think about imperfect spider webs as the image of our knowledge networks that there are constantly things in our knowledge networks that work they help us figure things out in the world, they help us do science, they help us do philosophy, they help us do medicine. And then there are other sections that are just breaking, that are just breaking down, right? That are no longer sort of working, whether for the field or for our practices with one another. And um, the invitation here is to find uh, styles of curiosity that help us rebuild those sections, uh, perhaps in new ways.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nothing, uh, nothing's perfect, right? We always, we're always in this uh, state of trying to be better. And in order to get there, you have to break down pre-existing networks or pre-existing frameworks, not completely, uh, maybe just a little bit. And then some of them have to completely go and build new ones. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. That's just kind of how life is, I guess. (laughs) So is, uh, is knowledge discrete or is it, uh, or is it a continuous? How should we, how should we look at it? So you have... Mm -hmm. You have a chapter of the book where you dig really deep into the web of knowledge and yeah, it starts off with talking about like, how, how can we visualize it? Like, how can we think about it? And yeah, so is, is knowledge discrete or continuous?
1: Yeah, this is where uh, I suggest that knowledge is a lot like Swiss cheese in space. If you want to understand why I think it's Swiss cheese in space, I think you should read the book. But um, (laughs) uh, I do think that it's more than discrete. Um, I think that it is, I think it is a connective structure. So it's not going back to these ideas of reductionism to understand knowledge. I don't think we can solely understand the pieces of information that we're exposed to, but we have to understand how those pieces of information are related to one another and connected to one another so we really we um, knowledge is a connective structure. To see that maybe for, for the audience members to see that in your everyday life, you can go onto to um, Wikipedia, for example, which is an online encyclopedia. And you can look up one of your favorite topics and you can realize that the the words that are highlighted in blue are those that have a hyperlink what's called a hyperlink that will take you from that page to another page on another topic a related topic um, and that connective structure is kind of an illus it's it's an it's a um, imperfect reflection of the interconnected nature of knowledge in our in our collective minds any particular person however will have only a small set of those relationships we might not all understand every um possible hyperlink that could come out of a particular page Um, and so then I I bring up Wikipedia, not just to illustrate the connective structure of knowledge, but also because Wikipedia is what we then use to understand whether these archetypes of curiosity that have been present in the Western intellectual tradition for the last 2000 years are also present today. Or the alternative hypothesis is that technology has ruined us all, and we don't have any of the same curiosities that we had 2,000 years ago. Okay, so these are the two. These are two um, competing approach or suggestions. What we do um, in collaboration with David Lyden Staley, who's a professor at Annenberg School of Communication at Penn, is to have um, volunteers. Um browse Wikipedia for 15 minutes a day for 21 days. And then we study which pages they went to and in what order. And we can from that information build up the networks that they walked on. Um, walking meaning like clicking through. And then from those networks, we can determine whether they're closer to the busybody um, or closer to the hunter. And so As as an example of what this would look like, a person could start out on a page that is about um, rhododendrons and then they might move to a page that's about oakleaf hydrangeas or winterberry or holly bush or some other bush that you would stick in front of your house or maybe Mountain Laurel. I love Mountain Laurel. Um, In any case, they're going between these different pages and all of those pages are connected very tightly. Um, That person would be a hunter. In contrast, there could be somebody who starts at Mountain Laurel and then goes to um, Queen Elizabeth and then moves to um, Minecraft. Now, those are really distinct pages, uh, very, very different ideas. And maybe there's something about the Queen of England that reminded them of Minecraft. Maybe there's something about Mountain Laurel that reminded them of the Queen of England. We don't know. Um, but they move through these very different pages, and that's more the busybody. So what we can do from watching people walk through Wikipedia is that we can see that there are some people who are very busybody-like, and then there are other people who are very hunter-like. And there are lots of people who are in between, who are like kind of you know half and half. Um, so, this illustrates to us that these archetypes of curiosity that Perry has excavated from the historical philosophical literature are present today, and technology hasn't ruined us all. Um, <laughs> the, the second thing that we learned from that study is that people who are busybodies on one day tend to be busybodies for 21 days. So, there's something kind of trait like about it in the sense that. Um, a single person like me wouldn't typically start as a busybody and end as a hunter, or vice versa in in this particular experiment. We'll start with one style and we'll kind of stick with it within some range. So we vary day to day a little bit, but we don't typically move from one end of the spectrum to the opposite end of the spectrum. So that suggests, I think, something important that complements an earlier part of our conversation. What this data suggests is that people might have a predisposition towards one particular style and that they might use that regularly through many of their days. But that doesn't mean that or or, but it's also possible that in particular contexts, like the development of a scientific argument or discovery, um, maybe we would move through three different styles in that specific context, but it might not be that all of those styles are ones that we would use in our regular life throughout the day. Does that make sense? So there's a distinction between yeah. sort of our typical style and what we might use a whole set of styles for a particular problem inside of our lives.
0: No, I, d- I definitely understand what you're saying and I can relate it to my own life. Cause I know that when, I, when I'm naturally curious and able to explore things on my own, like say I have some leisure t- leisure time, and i'm interested about a certain topic i'm definitely in uh, busybody mode where i'm just kind of gathering all this information but when i go to do my research i'm in hunter mode when i started my research i was in busybody mode you know this goes back to the learning styles and the analogy you were using earlier danny yeah when i do my own research i'm doing i'm in hunter mode because i'm already refined on the problem know exactly what i'm doing so i am more concerned with my knowledge going deeper than i am being a understanding the larger field at the moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But one thing I was curious about, you mentioned 21 days. So is mm-hmm. that just the extent of the study or is that this magic number 21 days kept popping up when you looked at the Wikipedia information that people tend to just gravitate for 3 weeks in a particular in a particular style?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um so the the 21 days was chosen because it's it's um, a reasonable time to ask people to be involved in a study that's okay. that's daily because we we ask them to browse daily, so it's a big com- time commitment. Um, and so we chose 21 days to be long enough that we could really see variation across days and weeks, but short enough that people would stay in the study <laughs> and not drop out.
2: Okay,
1: um, so that's <laughs> why we do 21 days. It's kind of an empirical um, constraint set of constraints that determines it. But you're right that it's so that my claim that there's a style we really only have evidence that that's the case for three weeks Um, and it's possible that if you go from year to year in someone's life you know if i look at myself when i was 21 and then 28 and then 34 and then 40 maybe i would have different styles of curiosity at each of those ages it's that's possible um and our our study doesn't say one way or another whether that's the case so i think that that deserves uh more work in the future
0: yeah, they're still very interesting, and yeah, I'm excited to see what happens in the future. I can certainly appreciate too the fact that you have uh, experimental constraints. So you're dealing with you're dealing with human beings, and of course, uh, you know, there are ethics involved with any sort of experimental setup, and also dealing with just how humans naturally behave. Sometimes you don't they don't cooperate in the manner that you want them to, so you have to give them uh, you have to give them opportunity to uh, to to do what they want to without walking away. Um, anyway, another another topic that you were talking about within this particular chapter, so this is um, the Web of Knowledge chapter, that you had three particular, I don't want to call them archetypes, but you had mentioned three network shapes in particular. Um, so you had like modular, lattice, and then random. And you said that it was one particular network type that was optimal for human learning. So I was yeah. hoping we could explore that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this is in work where we uh, show people a stream of information, and then we ask whether they were able to detect the um, network structure underneath, and this helps us to understand whether there are certain kinds of network structures that are easier to learn than others. This actually relates back to our the earlier part of our conversation on statistical learning, where the babies mm. are being exposed to a stream of phonemes in in um, which comprise language. Uh, for us, what we are doing is that we are showing people. Um, a series of items or pieces of information and asking if they can learn the network structure underneath the pieces of items. Um, What we find is that people respond more quickly and learn better when they're exposed to information in a modular structure, so that means where some items um, are are related to one another rather densely and another set of items are related to one another densely and maybe there's a third set of items that are related to one another densely and there are very few connections between those modules Um, and that's the kind of structure that people seem to be responding to very quickly and seem to be learning and understanding so that's really interesting because um it is both consistent with and informs the way that we give lectures in scientific spaces. So when I go to give a talk on my work at a scientific conference, I will typically separate my comments into three sections um, and say, you know, here's some information about this idea, here's information about this idea, here's information about this idea. And then I draw some links between them so that it doesn't feel like three completely independent stories, right? But I spend significant time inside of each of them, inside each section, so that people really feel like that's a module that they've understood before we move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Now with these three styles did you start off with more, more styles and then you kind of narrowed down over the years of research and you said that these are the three primary ones that we that you identified as being uh, kind of being important like th- that these are out of everyone that we studied these are the mm-hmm. primary these are the, these are the primary network shapes
1: Yeah no that's a good question so we did it um because these three are um sort of span the space of networks in an interesting way the modular one is highly ordered okay um, the lattice one is ordered in a two-dimensional space or a lower dimensional space and then the random one is, is random so that's a nice kind of benchmark um, in and again we had experimental constraints that we couldn't show a hundred different networks because there wouldn't uh, it would take too long um, for a single person uh, to sort of sit down and go through all of them. So uh-huh. we had to choose a small number. But then I will say that in later work um, that was just recently published um, in the journal Nature Physics and was led by Christopher Lynn, who at the time was a graduate student in the lab. Um, he showed that if we can, we can actually computationally study a set of thousands upon thousands, I think it's 800 and some thousand um, network structures and demonstrate that that modular graph is the one that is predicted to be easiest to learn um, based on our computational models. And so that helps us to then go back to the to the experiments um, where, where human volunteers are, are helping us and say, we know that this one is, is a boundary piece. This is a, an unusual structure that should be easiest to learn. Is it really true? Um, and, then, and then span over to the, to the random graph. So we have some evidence computationally that these are reasonable choices to be making. Mm-hmm.
0: And then experimentally, I don't recall whether or not you actually studied this um from the book, yes. but I'm guessing that you studied it experimentally. And this is what you you confirmed the computational work.
1: Yes. Yes, okay. we do. So that computational model fits the human behavioral data extremely well and explains all kinds of additional oddnesses, strangeties <laughs> of um, human behavior. And it also um, is consistent with the fact that we find that humans learn the modular network best.
0: How did you actually test for that for the speed of knowledge? I suppose knowledge ac- acquisition within a laboratory setting. I didn't dig into the paper personally. Yeah. Um, from I, I was just I'm just curious though.
1: Yeah. So in a laboratory setting, what we will do is so one of the challenges of trying to understand um, knowledge building in humans is that our participants are adults um, and they come in having. Uh, A whole structure of knowledge in their minds already right and you don't know exactly what that structure is so there's the issue of prior knowledge or prior information that can cloud what you then see in a laboratory experiment. So what we do to address that is to provide humans with information that they have no previous knowledge about. Um, So that means it has to be kind of like a nonsense word or um, an image of a planet they've never seen or um, an alien culture, right? So these examples that I talked about earlier are ones that we can use because they are isolated pieces of information that humans shouldn't have been exposed to before. And in that space of new information, we can say, um, can we show you this information and do you learn the network structure underneath of it? Uh, So that's that's how we do it.
0: All right. Very interesting. And something else that I found completely fascinating that you talked about uh, within this particular chapter is you brought up statistical physics and the free energy principle and uh, how the mind tends to use that. And it's a balance of two pressures, which I can't recall at this moment, but Mm -hmm. I just, anyway, I I just found it fascinating. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's a balance between um, computational complexity and accuracy. And so Imagine that you want to be relatively accurate in responding to your world. Um, that's important for you to um, survive. If you don't respond accurately to your world, then maybe you will uh, make a decision that is not beneficial to you and could harm you, right? So you want to have a relatively accurate model of the world because that helps you to respond in a way that's good for your um, health, well being, and survival. However, building accurate models of the world requires a lot of mental effort and requires you to hold in your mind a model that's really complicated. It has a lot of computational complexity. So these are these two pressures that sort of fight with one another. The more accurate you try to be in your model building, the more effort you have to expend but you don't really like to spend a lot of effort. We are a system that um, tends to minimize energy expenditures. So you might want to move the computational complexity down, but then that pulls your accuracy down, right? And then you don't respond to your world in the most appropriate ways. So these two um, pieces are, are kind of competing with one another in your mind as you choose how to build models of the world. And each of us may come to a different kind of midpoint in that trade-off some of us are more accurate and ex- expend more computational complexity some of us are less accurate and expend less effort
0: so I just had a bit of a dancer moment uh, where Good. I was thinking about where I was thinking about uh, cognitive biases in the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Bersky and they were talking about these systems of thinking so you have systems one and systems two where the systems one is a more um, so more deliberate like it takes effort and it's the more logical part of your mind so this is where where the more complex decisions would come from versus system two or maybe i have it backwards system two is the more where, where the heuristics and cognitive biases come from it's your quicker um, fast processing mind and you're always in a competition between these two different systems and When you're making a decision, you don't want to be overwhelmed by the quick, uh, I don't want to call it illogical, but this is where the heuristics lie, the cognitive biases that can influence you uh, negatively, uh, versus the more deliberate systems one. So you're talking about the statistical physics and these two different pressures where you're trying to figure out where the balance is between the complexity versus efficiency. I just was thinking about these two different systems that uh, uh, Versky and uh, Kahneman came up with.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really nice connection. Um, and I've often thought about how this this statistical physics theory relates to questions of of bias, um, cognitive biases of of all kinds, um, implicit and explicit biases, biases related to the cultures that we've inherited or the systems um, that we exist in. I think that that's a space I would love to do more scholarly work in. And that's something you'll pro- you will probably probably could tell from the book is that that's the understanding of bias and, and the sort of lauding of, of marginalized voices is something that we're very committed to um, and discussed throughout. I don't know, Perry, if you have something to add there.
2: Yeah, I would just say that, you know, in philosophy, we spend a lot of time not only practicing reason and deliberation, but also critiquing reason and deliberation. And I would just say that um, there's a lot of literature and philosophy that establishes bias is just as present in sort of an intuitive, quick judgments as it is in long drawn out deliberations. So I don't know what kind of conversation there is between systems one, and system two com- um, kind of relationships and this literature, but I would say that simply because we're using our executive functions and our reason and our deliberation doesn't necessarily mean we'll be less likely to employ bias in our um, assessments of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, perhaps somebody will explore explore more, or maybe it's not worth exploring. I don't know. I was, <laughs> but yeah, I just I just had that kind of, that uh, sort of epiphany there when I was thinking about these two different pressures and uh, then the systems one versus systems two that was mentioned from um, um from Kahneman's work. Yeah. Um. Think- anyway, when you're talking about uh, networks, and there's an entire chapter devoted to this, but uh, you mentioned the word walk quite a bit. And how when you're you see yourself positioned on a node in order to get from one node to the next, you have an edge, but you need to walk, whether that is, you know, whether you think of that from a actual literal physical standpoint or you're doing it in your mind. Um, there needs to be some sort of connection. And I just thought the entire chapter that you devoted to the walk was like this deep philosophical exploration. And I understood, so I don't have a, a, a deep philo- uh, philosophical um, background uh, to pull from, but I still found it very fascinating. And Perry, maybe we could just talk a little bit about that and why you actually felt the need to include this chapter uh, from a, just in general, yeah. Like why, why you felt the philosophy was so important to include here with, um, with the, the walk and then the different types of walks that you explored philosophically.
2: Sure. The reason that we decided to include this chapter um, is because the you know we've established at this point in the book a, a connectional network account of curiosity and one of the common languages in um, network science of, of of moving along a network is is through a walk right and there are different sorts of walks um, scientifically speaking um, that we draw from graph theory but um, but walking. One walks on a network. One, find, one can track walks on a network, um, so that was already a really resonant word in um, a network account of curiosity. And on the other side, the philosophy of curiosity so 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 often when when we're when I'm reading philosophies of curiosity walking actual walking in the world comes up as a practice that uh, facilitates a curious mind so we just couldn't why is it here we couldn't not have it here this chapter um it was it was begging to be uh, a thread that the two of us not only pulled out from our respective fields but then kind of wove together um yeah so that particular chapter, you know, we, I dig into a number of different kinds of walks. So it's not just, you know, when I walk to the grocery store and I have one particular thing I need to get and I and I walk back. I mean, that's that's that kind of walk facilitates a particular state of mind um, mm-hmm. that might have me curious about is the thing I want at the grocery store going to be there or am I going to have to go to a different grocery store? Right. Um, but then there are other sorts of walks that invite other state uh, states of mind that allow for other kinds of literally other kinds of questions to, to live and breathe in in our, in our head spaces. Um, so I think a lot about this long history of walking as intimately tied to the, the styles of curiosity we practice and the topics of curiosity we engage with.
0: Okay. Yeah, I know, I know that I was, um, I was reading through it and I just thought it was really interesting because it's something that I'd never really thought about how how the environment influences your curiosity and the ways that you actually seek out information. So you're talking about the different you had the different archetypes. I don't think you call them archetypes, but you have like the three primary ones, philosophical, the spiritual, the environmental and then the political. And I, yeah, I just I just found it was fascinating and I particularly like the one on the environmental just because I'm a huge nature person. And I definitely think differently when I'm out in nature versus let's say I'm sitting at home on my, you know, at my desk doing my work, or if I'm out with friends and family or something like that. So yeah, my curiosity has definitely changed.
2: Yeah, and this, environment. yeah, and each of those kind of Kinds of walks: the philosophical, the spiritual, the environmental, or the political. Um, engage in different literal geographical spaces, and they they could have each been their own chapter, right? There's a lot. There's a lot of literature uh, thinking about walking in connection with curiosity and/or with thinking. But it's specifically in the environmental chapter, um, this across environmental literatures, people are consistently writing about this: that the thoughts you can think when you're in a green space are significantly different um, than when you're not. And um, I think it was Walt Whitman in, in that particular section who said something about, um, there are just ideas hanging on trees when he walks um, and that the ideas themselves still have the earth attached to them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that tells you, that's his poetic way of saying that there's an authenticity, I think, to the ideas available when you are it's not just you know in a you suddenly find yourself in a green space but when when you are in more intimate relationship with the earth on which we live so if you have that if you are if you are in a relationship with the earth um, and have that relationality happening then the relational connections you can make between concepts and life uh, are much more vibrant i think that's Mm -hmm. that's what he's suggesting there
0: yeah, no, it, it's yeah, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, and it's definitely again thinking about all these different spaces that you can be in and just how it influences how you think. Um, I, I can definitely relate. And it was a bit eye-opening because I'd never thought about it like that before at that level. So it's very interesting. But anyway, like we've talked, we've had a number of different topics that we've talked on. It's all been wonderful. How can all of this information be used to shape? education. You devote, uh, you have a section towards the end of the book, you talk about this. So, yeah, how, how can we, how can we use it to, to reshape, to, to reimagine education?
2: Yeah, I think the short version is, if we redefine curiosity as a capacity For connection of ideas and people, Um, and if we analyze the styles of curiosity, the styles of making connections in our in our knowledge systems and between people, then um, our educational settings become a much more uh, a place of much greater variety how people put ideas together, how they build their knowledge networks, what kind of knowledge networks they're bringing in, what kind of social values inform the structures of those knowledge networks they're bringing in are so different, so disparate. And uh, it means that in the classroom, we as facilitators of learning have all, I think, a lot more work to do I think we've been trained or sort of expected to educate in the way we may have been educated, although Danny and I weren't educated that way, but many people were (laughs) um, uh, to just sort of, this is how you do it. This is how you learn. Um, And, but really, I think we need to go back to the drawing board and say, how do you learn, right? We're in a state Mm -hmm. where we need to figure that out a lot more so that we can just help facilitate how you are already your own curious self. Um, And I know Danny has a lot um, to say here about specific ways we we typically expect curiosity to show up that it um, that don't cover all the bases.
1: Yeah, I just I have a favorite example from a recent class that I taught um, where we uh, I required essays from the students and the typical essay obviously has a a very specific structure. It starts with an introduction It has methods results discussion It has particular spaces for particular kinds of information and the student um, submitted a paper that Uh, went through minutely every every argument we had covered in the class, but as in the context of Alice in Wonderland. So Alice is talking to the Mad Hatter and to the the white rabbit and and engaging with the queen and doing all kinds of things in wonderland um, but illustrating and evincing and displaying the exact kinds of curiosity or of ideas that we had been describing in the class and it was this sort of just mind-blowing piece Um, not not like anything you would expect to get in a course of this kind but one of the one of the just most fun things to read so i love I love it when students um, have space. Like, I think it's it's incumbent upon us as, as professors or as teachers um, or leaders or um, facilitators to provide spaces where people can show the kinds of curiosity that they have and where that kind of curiosity can be validated and can be um, um, uh, valued uh, and understood and seen. Um, we don't all have to fit in boxes. There aren't enough boxes for all of us. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and that's definitely something I think that happens in the traditional education system. And I know that people have been talking about this for a long time now where there are definitely different learning styles. There's clearly different curiosity styles and one style is not going to fit every student. And if you just have the one style, you're going to be elevating just one type of student more or less that has that particular learning or curiosity style and leaving others behind where they don't necessarily need to well they shouldn't be left behind number one, but maybe the reason they're being left behind is just because you're not appealing to the curiosity style. So yeah I mean it definitely needs to be reimagined there needs to have some uh, some dancer moments there, where the network, the the education network is restructured and refined remove some of removing some of those edges building new ones. Um, I categorically agree I, I couldn't agree yeah I could it absolutely needs to be done. so. Going back to, um, you know, finishing up, you know, the education, and then you conclude with what's the word I'm looking for? Cracks. Cracks. That's it. Thank you so much. I couldn't. It wasn't coming to mind. <laughs> I got yeah. confused for a second. All right. Yes, cracks. Uh, let's let's quickly let's uh, quickly uh, touch on cracks.
2: Yeah, we had fun with this one. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, you know, this this is a I think most experimental uh, chapter. Um, we wanted to. Uh, Explore what we could do stylistically and also conceptually, and we wanted to, uh, you know, mess with a little bit what we had done in the book, um, in the way that any curious mind must. Uh, And you know, the whole book itself is is focused on building, connecting, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: building connections all the way through every chapter. This is what we think curiosity is, and it was really important at the end to press home the fact that that also means breaking connections curiosity also needs to break connections. even to make the connections it has to make it may have to break other ones in order to do that. Um, and so we call that cracks and, and okay. we and we and we fundamentally assert that um, curiosity has uh, crackability, right it, it inserts crackability into our worlds. Danny, do you want to add to that?
1: Um, yeah, just to say that 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 cracking allows for, a flexibility um, of mental spaces that's really important. So going back to the of Beasts and, and how I said that you know there's a set of connections, but there's also a set of missing connections that allows for these of Beasts to walk along the beach when the wind blows. If that sculpture had been constructed in a lattice-like way where every piece was connected to every other piece, no movement could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be fully rigid, right? It would have mechanical rigidity. and So the the absence of connection is also is important for movement. And so fast forwarding then to the crack section, it is the idea is to underscore that for many of us, for all of us, we want to have an open mind. We want to to move uh, in our knowledge spaces into the future in different ways that will require a flexibility. And, and that movement, the movement and flexibility will require cracking or breaking connections that we've had in the past. Um, and that's important for, for what we could envision for a new world in the future.
0: You know, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Anyway, Danny Perry, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I learned a ton. Uh, I think your book's phenomenal. Well yeah. done. Uh, where can people connect with you? Where can they find your book, your work?
1: The book is on MIT Press, and it's also on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of your favorite places
2: to shop, um, in- including local bookstores.
1: Including local bookstores, yes. Not yeah, yet so. in the used book section, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> soon, soon, soon. So. Yeah. Uh,
0: and then, are, uh, do you have websites, uh, any social media where people can follow you, uh, connect with you?
1: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Danny S. Bassett. um, And my webpage is is just through the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm a quick Google away.
0: All right, wonderful.
2: Yeah, and I'm Perry Zurn on Twitter and perryzurn.com for the website.
0: All right, fantastic. Well, anyway, uh, for all those of you who have stopped by and are either watching or or listening, thank you so much. Um, It's been wonderful. Uh, Definitely stay tuned. For more great content coming forward, go ahead, hit that like button, share, and uh, stay tuned until next time. Take care.
2: Thanks.